You know, I think you know by now that I enjoy humor and I like to interject it in uh, the sermons that I, that I preach. So generally, <clears throat> I do not like to begin with an overly serious question because I know that when you reflect back on things that have maybe happened in your life, it can bring up some painful memories. But I want to make an exception this morning and ask you, have you ever experienced a crisis in your life that seemed hopeless? I mean, have you ever been faced with a problem that seemed to be so big and seemed to be so extremely complicated that you just knew it was impossible to solve? Well, when those times come, I think it is very common for us to feel overwhelmed and to feel, uh, and we start to believe that there is actually no way out. And you honestly can feel like you're going under, right? Maybe it came in the form of a doctor's prognosis that was at best guarded. Maybe it was, it's a toxic or an abusive environment in your place of employment. Perhaps you're, you, you experienced a relational crisis that ended your marriage. Maybe it was a financial collapse and bankruptcy came knocking at your door. Perhaps it came in the form of a wayward child who was taught to love and to serve the Lord, but has chosen to walk away from both their faith and you as mom or dad. Well, if you've ever experienced one of those hopeless crises in life, or if even now you are facing a seemingly impossible situation, I really want you to pay attention this morning because in the next section we're going to read in the book of Acts, it records a time in the life of the early New Testament church where the Christians in Jerusalem were facing such a situation. It was a state of affairs that from anybody's perspective would have looked hopeless. And the way that they dealt with this unstoppable nightmare, I think clearly displays truth that we need to hear when we're dealing with our own. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the pew pocket in front of you. And if you don't want to go into the Bible, we will have the scriptures up on the screen and you can follow along with us. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. I'll be reading from the NIV this morning. The scriptures say it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to, was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, 
but he had no idea that the angel, what the angel was doing was really happening, so he thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hands for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered they be ex executed. This chapter in the history of the early church began with King Herod initiating a persecution against the church. And as we talk about Herod, you're probably remembering how many times you've heard that name as you've read the scriptures in the New Testament. And because of it, you're probably also thinking, this guy sure lived a long time. But what you probably don't understand is there are at least four Herods that are mentioned in the Bible. Herod number one was known as Herod the Great. This was the Herod who slaughtered the babies in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill the Christ child. And he murdered many members of his own family. Herod number two was known as Herod Antipas. He was the Herod who commanded John the Baptist to be beheaded and he ruled while Jesus was crucified. Herod number three was known as Herod Philip II. He was murdered by his own father because his father felt like his son and feared that his son was coming after his throne. But before Philip died, he had a son who became Herod number four, known as Herod Agrippa. This is the King Herod that we are reading about here in Acts chapter 12. Now, this Herod number four was a typical politician. And as you've probably been able to surmise, I'm not big on politicians. But he worked very hard at cultivating the good graces of the Jewish people. And he ruled by meticulously keeping both the Mosaic law and all Jewish observances. And guess what it worked? Because he became very popular with the Jews, especially the Jewish religious leaders. But there's one thing you must understand. He didn't do this because he loved the Jewish people. No, he did this because he wanted to please and impress his Roman masters since he was appointed his kingship by Rome. 
And he knew that the one thing that Rome wanted more than anything else was a peaceful Palestine. They wanted happy, non-rebellious subjects. Therefore, Herod, their lapdog, worked very hard to keep the Jews happy. Well, in our text from Acts, uh, it says that in efforts to gain even greater popularity, Herod Agrippa decided that he would attack the rivals of the Jewish religious leaders. And of course, I'm referring to the, the church of Jesus Christ, the Christian church and all of its leaders. So he arrested a group of Christians and in that group, he discovered one of them was none other than James, the brother of John. You may recall the scriptures refer to those two as th sons of thunder, James and John, the sons of thunder. Well, Herod Agrippa used his seemingly endless power to order James executed, and he was. He was executed by the sword. And this action provided the effect that he had desired because his approval rating with the Jews went even higher. So to raise it even higher, he decides to arrest Peter, who is well known as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and many referred to as, as Jesus' literal right-hand man. But Herod couldn't have uh, Peter killed immediately like he did with James. And don't, don't misunderstand, this temporary stay of execution had nothing to do with a sudden streak of kindness in this man's heart. It was simply another example of Herod's desire to be popular with the Jewish religious leaders. You see, the scriptures say that Peter was arrested during the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And according to Jewish law, no trial or execution could be carried out during that week. So Herod could not kill Peter until that week had passed. If he had, he would have risked the popularity that he had gained by arresting him in the first place. But I also believe that another reason that, that Herod wanted, or excuse me, waited until Passover was a very calculated move on his part because it was on Passover Sunday that the Christians claim Jesus had risen from the dead. So Herod knew that by not drawing attention to Jesus' resurrection, this would especially please those same Jewish religious leaders. Now I want you to note something else this morning. Peter was guarded by four quads of soldiers and each quad or quaternion as the Romans called it, were made up of four soldiers. So there were four such squads all assigned to guard Peter. And they did this because both the day and the night were divided into watches. Each watch for a soldier lasted three hours. If you were one of these soldiers, then during the day, you would have been on duty for three hours and off duty for nine hours. And then when the night rolled around, you were on again for another three hours and then off another nine hours. This was to ensure that the soldiers would be awake, that the soldiers would be attentive and be on the guard for what they were paid to do. Now, normally a prisoner was chained by the right hand uh, to the guard's left hand. But the scriptures say that Peter was chained by both hands with a guard on each side. While each of the remaining two guards kept watch at one of the two gates. That, that entered in. Now, why would Herod go to such lengths to guard this former fisherman? 
Well, perhaps it was because of something that happened several chapters earlier in chapter five. If you recall, there was an incident when the apostles, including Peter, had been preaching and healing in the temple courts. This angered the high priests. And so with the help of the, the jealous Sadducees, they arrested Peter and the other disciples and they put them into a public jail. And if you'll remember, as we read during the night, an angel of the Lord came and opened the doors of the jail and brought all of them out. So perhaps the high priest heard that Herod had arrested Peter and, and maybe said, hey, listen, Herod, I know it's a, it's a great thing that you've got Peter behind bars and all, but let me offer you just a little bit of advice. An angel got this guy out of jail one time before, so my advice to you is you had better guard this guy really, really well. Well, in Acts 12, verse 15, we see the climax of this entire chapter, so I want you to really pay attention to its words. It begins with, so Peter was kept in prison. It's the night before Herod is to bring him before trial, which I might add would have certainly been a death sentence for Peter. And Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound by two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. And then what I really want you to notice is the next word in verse five, but. And I want you to draw a circle around that word. In fact, I want you to highlight it in your Bible because that short three-letter word is a very powerful little conjunction. And I love this word because many times when you're reading the scriptures, it introduces something that is highly significant. The scripture says this, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. I mean, time and time again, this, the scriptures turn on this word, but. And to help you to see what I'm talking about, let's review the situation. On one side, you, you have this bloody, wicked, powerful Herod Agrippa on the throne who's backed by the seemingly limitless power of the Roman Empire. And he is out to not only persecute, but to destroy the young church there in Jerusalem. On the other side is the church. They are unarmed. They are meek. They are seemingly powerless. Plus, you got to remember, Herod seems to be way ahead in his battle, waging this war against the early church. He's already killed James. So I want you to imagine how these Christians felt after that happened. I mean, they're still reeling from this great loss of James. James was a part of Jesus' inner circle, one of the three men that he took with him everywhere, Peter, James, and John. You read the scriptures, those three names are constantly mentioned. James had seen Jesus do things that only two other people had seen. Jesus, James had heard Jesus say things that only two other people had heard. And now, James is dead. This man who literally experienced probably one of the closest and most intimate walks with Jesus. And I believe that, that the fact that this giant of the faith was able to be killed so easily was a severe shock to their self-confidence and their stability. But now things have gotten even worse. 
because Peter, their leader, is now in prison. Plus, it's not just any prison. Peter is being held in the Antonia Fortress. It is the same fortress in which Jesus was held before his crucifixion. And this is not just any cell. Luke is very, very precise here. He tells us this is not only Peter is being held behind this massive iron gate that served as the front door. This is his fortress, not just his jail cell, but this iron gate. And the cell that he is, is is deep within this impenetrable prison behind two other locked doors or gates. And as I said, there wasn't just one soldier guarding him. He was shackled between two other men, chained, which meant that they slept with him and they ate with him. He probably didn't even go to the bathroom alone for crying out loud. Plus there was a guard watching every one of the gates. I want you to think of it this way. Peter is on death row. And in the morning, Herod is sure to kill him, just like he killed James. Peter is about to be executed. And if you put that into more modern terms in our day, that means he's had his final meal and his head has been shaved. He's ready to go to execution. So the situation, it looks grim indeed. And Peter is ready to die. That is until a word pops up. That word, but. And never forget it's there to remind us that there is always something else on the other side of the ledger. You may not see it. You may not even know it. But there is always something else on the other side. Life is, folks, I just want to say life is not determined by what we see. It's not determined by what we feel. Oh my goodness, if it was, we'd all be goners. It is not determined by the things that we hear. The happenings of life are not always determined by those massive physical forces of evil that move around in this fallen world in which we live. There is more to be factored into every impossible situation. In fact, whenever we view a problem as being impossible, we are actually falling into a subtle trap. It's a trap of focusing only on the externals. And we master at that. Paul even told the Corinthians believers once, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. And we do the exact same thing. We Whenever we focus on simply the impossible situation we're in and not on our God, who is the absolute Lord over every situation, we're in trouble. So let's get back to the text. The situation is grim. The situation looks really bad for Peter. It looks like a dead end and there is no way out, but, but what? The church was in prayer. The church was in prayer. They weren't sitting on their hands worrying and grinding their hands. Oh, I hope Peter's going to be okay. Oh, I love Peter. I miss Peter. No, they're on their knees and they're praying for Peter. Look at verse 5 in its entirety. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Prayers were being uttered by the church for Peter and for his situation. 
And before I go any further, let's pause and consider another very important truth. The scripture says that the church was united in praying for Peter. And folks, that is the way it should be. The members of the church should not only pray together, but they should pray for one another. When Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, do you remember what he said? He said, my house is a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. In other words, Jesus taught that one primary purpose of us gathering together in this place, in his house, is for the purpose of prayer. And as we have studied in the book of Acts, to me, it's impossible to imagine the members of this early church not gathering together to pray with one another. I mean, praying was what they gathered to do in those days. Meeting together with other Christians in the days of that early church and not praying was an unconceivable concept in their minds. Well, I think that prayerlessness should be as unthinkable for us as well. Because when two or more are gathered, as the Bible says, or when 400 or more for that matter come together and pray, they will experience an unbelievably powerful unity through which God can and God will do amazing things in our midst. Prayer gets us on the same wave, wavelength. It unites us as one. It gets us plugged in to God's power and God's way of thinking. And if you've ever prayed for any period of time with a group of Christians, you know exactly what it is that I'm talking about. When Christians pray together, they experience a unique bond through which God can and God will do great things. T.W. Hunt, the author of Prayer Life, wrote this. If we examine the expansion of the church in the book of Acts and the epistles, we see convincing proof of the power of prayer. The early church had innumerable obstacles. Christianity was known and it was opposed by the authorities. Wherever it spread, it suffered constantly from false accusations and rumors. But, I love it, there's that word, by the end of the first century, it had spread in exactly the geographical pattern commissioned by Jesus, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. This rapid geographical and ideological shift could have, only been, accomp could, could have been accomplished only by supernatural forces. The instrument of expansion was the church, and the force the church was using was what? Prayer. And if we want to see that same kind of a power in effect here at High Point, that power that was displayed in the early New Testament church, then we should pray like they prayed. We should look at prayers like they did as an indispensable source of unbelievable power. In Acts, it says that the early disciples devoted themselves continually to prayer. We must give ourselves to prayer as well in all of our ministries that operate here in this church. Listen, if we are going to be a powerful church, we are gonna to have to be a praying church. So on one side of this situation was mighty Rome and wicked Herod, but there's that powerful word again, on the other side of the ledger was the church. 
the people of God who were praying specifically for Peter. Now, some would say, well, there's a lack of realism there. They think that this little band of people praying together could change the force of the Roman government or change the destiny of nations or, or break open prison doors. And it is hard with our limited human understanding to believe that, that prayer can be that powerful, but it can be, and it is. Perhaps the most powerful force in this world, and it should always be our weapon of choice, and it should always be our first response. I mean, here's the deal. I have gotten in the habit when somebody says, can you pray for my sister or my brother or whatever, even out in the receiving line, I can't remember all of that. You guys think I have a photo memory? I mean, I'm gonna forget that by the time I'm eating my second taco at lunch. <laughs> so, so I drop what I'm doing, I said, let's pray now. And I'll grab your hand and I'll pray for you. And then if I prayed it and I said that person's name, I'm much more likely going to remember it. So, so sometimes when a problem comes, we dwell on it, we talk about it. Oh, and I can't believe it. And if this happens, and we start painting the worst case scenario, why don't we just stop and say, dear Jesus, this is a mess. And we need your help. We'll talk, and we'll talk a problem to death. And God wants us to get on our knees, and he wants us to pray about the situation right then and there. I'll even, God love my wife. I'm sitting on the sofa sometime, and I'll, something will come into my mind, and, and, I'll, and I'll tell her about it. And I said, we need to pray about it. She says, well, let's pray now. She turns the TV off. Yeah, she does that. Mr. Pastor, who's telling you you need to pray, first of all, and then my wife does that to me. I do the same thing. I talk about it. It's horrible. Pray God's going to help. And my wife says, well, let's pray now, Pastor. How many of you know that your spouse is valuable? If you're married and you're not clapping right now, you're in big trouble, I'm just telling you. Someone once wisely said, prayer is the force that moves the hand that moves the world. And we have a track to the hand that moves the world. We have the ability as believers in Christ to pray to God at any time, at any moment, about anything. And this all leads me to the first truth this morning. The, fact that I, the first fact that I want us to take away from this study of the early church. Number one, prayer changes things. Now, I know you've heard that a million times in your life. In fact, I think it was back in the 70s or 80s, it was a bumper sticker thing. The Christian community all had it. Prayer changes things. It was, it was all over the place. But I want you to write it down. Write it down in the, in the opening of your Bible so before you open that thing, you see it, and you're reminded that prayer changes things. In life, when it looks like everything is standing against us, when it looks like that we can't possibly win, when it looks like it's at the end and we're about to be overwhelmed by everything, it is then that we need to remember as followers of Jesus Christ is that prayer changes things. Why? Because prayer releases God's power. 
And that power may come in the form of wisdom. It may come through an idea that you desperately needed that you were unable to come up with on your own. It may come in the form of courage greater than anything you could ever muster up in your, in your own self. It may come in the form of confidence or perseverance or a changed attitude toward a spouse, toward a child, toward a parent, toward a friend. It may come through changed circumstances or maybe through an outright miracle, but however it comes, God's prevailing power is released in the life of people who pray because prayer changes things. It certainly did in Peter's situation. God sent an angel to free him. Could you imagine what that would have been like? Just imagine that. Man, I wish it happened to me. I'd be willing to go into jail just to see that happen. <laughs> the angel led this sleepy-eyed apostle through this vast fortress, past the armed guards. The doors opened all by themselves, and it was so amazing that Peter thought it was all a dream. And he didn't wake up and come to his senses, really, until he was a couple blocks away from the fortress. Maybe the exposure of the cool night air woke him up. Maybe he stubbed his toe on the concrete. I don't know. But, but when he woke up, it was then that he realized what had happened. And he hurried to John Mark's house. And what happened next, folks, is good comedy. You can't write comedy like this. He knocked on the door, and a servant girl named Rhoda comes in and answers. She recognizes Peter's voice. And she's so excited that she leaves him standing there while she runs upstairs to tell everybody. So she left Peter out front to be recaptured again, if you think about it. He's out there like, what? I'm free. You're going to make me stand out here. So when she enters the room where the other people are praying for Peter, she said something like, Peter's here. He's out of prison. And they replied, that's impossible. And don't interrupt our prayers ever again. Now let's see, where were we? Oh yes, God, you know that our leader is in prison and we ask you, Father, through the power of your spirit that you will free him. So please do. He's standing outside the door. And Rhoda, she insists, listen to me, guys. It's Peter. I'd know that voice anywhere. They still refuse to believe her. Come on, Rhoda, get real. It must be a ghost. And Rhoda said, but it's Peter. Oh my goodness, I left him standing outside. And so she rushes back and she lets him in the door. And this clearly, folks, shows us that God answers our prayers even when we don't fully believe he can. I have heard people say the reason your prayer did not get answered or the reason someone didn't get healed because you lack faith. That is the most irresponsible thing for anybody to ever say. The person that says that should, whatever. Um, we all have faith, but we're all human beings and we are wired a certain way. And the supernatural doesn't make sense to us. In fact, there's a part of our brain that can't even grasp the supernatural really because it doesn't make sense to our human psyche. And I get so frustrated when people say you don't have enough faith and that's why so-and-so died. How irresponsible is that? These people didn't even know how to pray other than, dear God, Peter's in jail. Lord, we need him. He's our leader. 
let him out. We don't need an unlimited amount of faith in order to pray and to see God's hand move. We just need to trust that the words we're saying are real and that we know who it is that we are praying to do and has the power to do the things that we ask. In Matthew 17, 20, Jesus said, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, have you seen a mustard seed before? It's a little bit smaller than an atom, I think. It's small. You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And I might add, as long as you're praying in accordance to God's will. Okay. So don't go out there with your mustard side faith and say, I want a Ferrari in my driveway. That ain't gonna happen. The fact is, church, our prayers, even our faith is so weak that all it does, if, if, if all it does is enable us to ask, our prayers still change things. They do. God acts in and through us in response to our prayers. God wants us to cooperate with him. And often he will not act through us without our asking or without our inviting him. Why would almighty God do it this way? Why would he wait until we utter those prayers? Well, it's because he created us to have fellowship with him. That's why we were created. We were made to partner with our heavenly father. This is, Je this is what Jesus meant when he told Peter these words in Matthew 16, 19. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Our prayers make a big difference, high point. Because God acts in response to them. Prayer changes things. And one of the best biblical pictures of this amazing truth is found in the eighth chapter of the book of Revelation. This is where John describes a scene in heaven after the seals of the scrolls have been broken. They are the scrolls that tell the story of, of humanity's sin and of humanity's violence and God's judgment. Well, at this point in the narrative, a remarkable thing happens when John writes that there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. During this time, an angel with a golden censer comes to the altar and he offers a golden pan of incense, which is representative of the, the prayers arising from the people on earth. And in Revelation 8, 4, it says, the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. And John shares that next comes great acts of judgment upon the earth, pictured by rumbles of thunder, flashes of lightning, and great earthquakes. But what is most striking is, it, is that these powerful actions come in response to the prayers of the saints. Usually we think the events on earth being interrupted because of actions taken in heaven. But here in Revelation, it is the other way around. All of heaven comes to a standstill 
The endless songs of praise of heavenly hosts are suddenly silenced. Why? Because someone is praying. All of heaven stops to hear the prayers of the saints, your prayers, my prayers. Every one of them rises up before God. They are heard and they matter. Don't think your prayers don't matter. Your prayers do. Prayers uttered by real people like you and me. Yes, even prayers of desperation literally interrupt heaven. Can you get that visual in your mind? Prayer changes things, high point, because God acts in response to your and my requests. And that'd be a good place to say an amen. amen. Some of you may know that we send out emails to members of our prayer team. Whenever a prayer request is called in, emailed in, texted in, faxed in, or called in, or face-to-face, -face, we, we try to get these prayer requests out so that we know that our prayer warriors here at the church are praying for your needs. And I can't tell you how many times someone has pulled me aside and said, Pastor, it were the prayers of the people here at High Point that got me through that situation or got this thing remedied. And they tell of these incredible stories. I'm talking about seamless, hopeless situations where God has intervened and he has answered a person's prayer. The, the fact is that we will never know how many people's lives have been strengthened because we ask God to encourage them or how many people have received healing or how many spiritual runaways have come back to home like the prodigal son. We will never know the difference our prayers have made, I don't believe, until we get into heaven. But I once heard something that I believe to be true. History belongs to the intercessors, those who believe and pray the future into being. And I thank God for the intercessors here at High Point. Your prayers do make a difference. Let's hear it for our prayer team. Well, the second truth I want you to take away from this study is number two, prayer changes people. This is a comforting truth because if people don't change, what good does it matter, does it make for a circumstance to change? Well, prayer does change people. And as you continue on in chapter 12 and beyond, you'll see great examples of this in the lives of the early believers. I mean, before this answer to prayer, they were huddled in a room fearing for their lives. But after now, they're so bold, they go out and they witness the word of God and it starts to spread like wildfire, they changed because of the power of prayer. In fact, the answer to their prayers, the miracle of Peter's release became a literal watershed moment because the believers were catapulted at that moment towards greater levels of faith. Here's some more biblical examples of this principle. Prayer made a shy Moses into a leader. Prayer softened the cruel heart of Pharaoh. Prayer kept a discouraged Elijah from quitting. Prayer turned a fanatical persecutor of the early church named Saul into a world-changing apostle named Paul. And prayer changed Peter as well. You remember while in prison it said Peter, it inferred that Peter was so full of faith and, and so much at peace that he could sleep deeply even though he knew that he was going to be killed the next day. But only about 10 
or 15 years earlier, Peter had been a different man. He had lied in order to avoid punishment, and he had fled because of his fears, but not anymore. In fact, after this experience, he became even more fearless because he headed to Rome, and Rome was the seat of the Roman Empire to boldly share the love of Jesus Christ with both Jew and Gentile. All this because prayer changes people. When we pray with our hearts open to God and we are truly listening for his response, guess what? It makes us more like him. As someone once said, prayer enables us to think his thoughts after him. Plus prayer opens our eyes to our own sin. It shows us that we need to, be, we need to change in order to be more con, 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 uh, conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. During the Great Awakening, when the Spirit of God revealed much of our nation's early faith, Jonathan Edwards was preaching a massive prayer meeting with 800 men. And into that meeting, a woman sent a message, and she asked the men to pray for her husband. The note described a man who, and I quote, had become unloving, prideful, and difficult. And Edwards first read this message in private, but then thinking that perhaps that man might be in the meeting, he made a bold request. And Edwards read the note to the 800 men. Then he asked the man who was described in that letter, asked him to raise his hand so that the whole assembly could pray for him. Well, when he asked that question, 300 men raised their hand in that room. So please don't tell me that prayer doesn't change people because prayer changes our hearts, which in turn changes us. And High Point, we have to be a people of prayer. We have to be. Prayer, as I said earlier, should always be our first response to everything. It should never be our last resort. From the small little daily struggles that you go through to the seemingly impossible crises of life, our approach should always first be prayer. Because prayer changes things, and prayer changes people. But prayer also changes circumstances. So if you want to see change in your life so that those you love can literally see it in action, make prayer the cornerstone of your Christian faith. Scott, will you come forward to the worship team and help me to close this down? I'd like to ask all of you to stand to your feet if you would. Since we have been discussing prayer this morning, I want to open this altar, and I would like for us as a body, as a family, to spend some time in prayer together. Perhaps you've joined us this morning, and you find yourself facing some kind of a horrible, some seemingly impossible situation in your life. If that is true, then I want to encourage you this morning to pray to talk to God about it. I promise you that he wants to do nothing more than to answer your prayer. 
and to show you that things are not always as they seem to be. I also want you to remember that you can pray about anything. There is no subject that is off limits to the Lord. You are his child. He is your father. He loves you. He wants to hear what his child has to say. In Philippians 4, 6 and 7, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wouldn't you like to, to know that peace this morning? You can. You can through prayer. And here's another thing. You don't need to be timid in your prayers, in your praying. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. With confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not in a relationship with Jesus. And, 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 and although you may not be facing an insurmountable crisis in your life at this moment, I'd like to suggest to you that you are facing one huge decision this morning. I mean, you've heard about Jesus. Maybe you were even raised in a Christian home, but you've never received his free gift of salvation. If you are here, and you are not a Christian this morning, then I urge you to let the power of prayer change you right here, right now. The Bible says that when someone uh, is, when a person is in Christ Jesus, they become a new creation. It says, old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Will you allow God to make you new this morning? All you have to do is pray. As Anthony said earlier, all you have to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to this earth and that he died on the cross and the blood that he shed is the cleansing agent. That's the atoning agent that covers your sin, wipes it away, and you become a new creation in Christ Jesus. And maybe as you've been sitting here this morning, you haven't been affected at all by anything that's been said. Well, if that's the case, then allow me to propose something to you. When you think about all of this, can you somehow see that it would be foolish to say no to this kind of power, the power that comes through prayer? I'm talking about a power that can change things, a power that can change people a power that can change your circumstances. And let me remind you of the words found in James chapter 4, verse 2. You have not because you do not ask. It's like I said earlier, we talk and we don't pray. And the reason we don't have is because we don't ask. We don't go to Abba Father. Listen, I get it. Sometimes you don't understand everything. I don't understand everything either. I'm sure that doesn't surprise you. But you need to ask. You need to ask God because God is the only one who has the ability and the power to change your circumstances or change you for that matter. So I invite anyone who will to come forward to this altar today. If you can't kneel, 
Stand back and stand behind those who can. I think it would be awesome to see this entire body just come forward and spend some time while the worship team sings in prayer. If you have a need, bring your need. If you want to worship God, worship God. If you just want to pray and come together and it be symbolic that we are a body of believers who are now going to come together and we are going to seek God for his power to do great things in our lives, in and through us and through this church and come down and join us for a few moments in prayer and then we will close this service in prayer.
stay at the altar or at the altar want to stay they can pray as long as they want I want to close this service in prayer so if you bow your heads with me father we thank you for this day thank you for your many blessings thank you for your faithfulness to us thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness we thank you for the Holy Spirit who empowers us God, you truly give us everything that we need to live in this age and to live successfully and to live strongly for you and we thank you for that. We most especially thank you for this thing called prayer. This way that we can connect with you and communicate with you and talk with you and express our fears and our concerns and our, and our worries and our needs. And God, that, to know that you don't just hear what we say, but you listen to what we say and you have the power to change those circumstances and you have the power to change us. Thank you for that, Lord. My prayer is that this body of believers would be all become prayer warriors. That prayer would be our first thing that we do in all situations. It would not be our last resort. The moment something comes up, we immediately cry out your name and we ask for your help and we ask for your guidance. Lord, let that be said of High Point Assembly that they are not just a people who love and care about their community, but they are a people of prayer. Because God, when we start to pray about everything, we will see greater things than we have ever seen before. So just, would you just sear that on our hearts today, Lord, that we are meant to be a people of prayer and that we would take advantage of that prayer life all the time and anytime. So God, use us in this way. And I ask, Lord, as we go our separate ways today, that your Holy Spirit would go with us guiding and directing our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. And those conversations would be designed to build people up and not to tear them down. That we would shine like bright lights in a very, very dark world. And we would shine so brightly that people would ask us, what is it about us that is different? And you open the door for us to share the love of Christ with them. And as always, Lord, I pray for us for a divine encounter for each one of us this week. Have someone cross our path where that very kind of a thing happens and you open the door for us to share Jesus' love with them. And Father, let us walk through that, that door boldly. And even more importantly, Lord, let us be prayed up before that moment has, happens so that we can walk into it boldly. So Lord, as we leave here, let us go in love. Let us love the unlovable and let us love those we come into contact with. And impress upon our hearts, Father, that we are a people of prayer and that we believe in the power of prayer and we believe in the hand that moves everything in heaven and earth. And that is the hand of Almighty God. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.